I, uh, I assume that some of you are with me on this. Every day, it seems like you turn on the radio or you turn on the news, there is a new national day, right? Now, some of those make sense to me, and some of them I can get on board with. Yesterday was National Peach Ice Cream Day. I'm all for that. I can get on board with that. In fact, apparently the entire month of July is National Ice Cream Month. So, uh, you know, we've made mention of this before. My doctor had gotten on me about a little cholesterol issue, and he, he gave me this pill that I now call my ice cream pill. Because as long as I take that pill, I can eat ice cream all I want, and I don't have to worry about it. Uh, now, he said that wasn't the intention for the pill, but it works, right? You know, uh, yesterday, uh, as I was looking through some of these, I, there's one that I saw that just does not add up. And so I had to go do some research on it. You can start on a place called nationalday.com. It'll give you all these national days, and you can find national months on there. Yesterday was also... Well, it reminded me, of, or made me think of Brian and Sharon. It was uh, National Yellow Pig Day. Now, their pig's black, but I thought, what in the world are we having a National Yellow Pig Day? So I go do the research on it. Well, apparently, the number 17 is a very unique number. The number 17 has all kinds of uh, uh, strange uh, things that go along with it. It's a prime number but it also, if you take all of the prime numbers before it and add them up, those prime numbers equal 17. And then there's several other little things about it. So this mathematician apparently uh, at, a, at a university in California was doing this study on 17 and, and, and what an important number that is to mathematicians. At the same time, one of his friends who was a professor there was doing a study on yellow pigs. So they called July the 17th National Yellow Pig Day. That does not add up at all to me. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I, I give you kind of a weird illustration there because there's two things that seem disparate that aren't necessarily connected, but somebody found a connection and began to bring them together. Today's passage deals with four paragraphs. These four paragraphs jump from, it's a part of a story, but when in, in preaching, I have to, I'm looking for the theme. What is it that God's trying to teach us out of that story? So you have a paragraph that talks about uh, Jesus's uh, uh, trial, his first trial before Annas, and then you have a paragraph that talks about Peter's denial, and then you have another paragraph that talks about the trial, and then you have another paragraph that talks about Jesus's, uh, 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 about Peter's, let's see, trial Peter, trial Peter, right, there you go. So it's all spread out. So I'm like, how am I going to preach this? Well, as I, as I searched this text back in December, one of the things that stood out to me was there was an underlying theme to the, not only those who were putting Jesus on trial, the one who had turned Jesus over to be uh, uh, to the, the, the high priest in Judas, but also to Peter's denial. That underlying issue for all of these men was pride. And as you walk through this text uh, and this story in a little bit larger sense, I believe that there's seven problems that you see here with pride. Now, I don't think that there, there's only seven problems with pride. I think you could go out and you could identify more issues that pride causes you. There are more problems with pride than seven. But these are seven that come out of this story. And so I want to I remind you that, uh, of where we are uh, Jesus has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he is about to be arrested. In fact, uh, the, the soldiers had come with the high priest to arrest Jesus, and while they were bringing him 
And they were coming to arrest him. Judas had come with them. Judas was the one who was betraying Christ and betrayed Christ there by, by placing a kiss on his cheek to identify the one that, that was to be arrested. And then the, the soldiers arrest him. And this all takes place immediately following the Lord's Supper the night before, that teaching time of Jesus that we spent a lot of time on in the Gospel of John, John 15, or, you know, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And then uh, you have Jesus' prayer in the garden. So all of that takes place that last evening and night of Jesus' life into the, the pre-dawn hours of the next morning. So we're at the pre-dawn hours. It's, the sun's not even up yet when this story picks up. And, and let me just read the text to you here. We're starting in verse 12, and it'll be up on the screen. Hebrew, I mean, John 18, verse 12 and following. The Scripture says, Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised, advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant, uh, the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now, the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I had spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, Give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, and he said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. Now, we know this story. We've been following along in the Gospel of John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that right at the time when they finished the Lord's Supper and Jesus was teaching about the fact that he was going to be betrayed and crucified, they all record Peter saying, I will never deny you. He said, even if all the others do, and even if I have to die for you, I won't deny you. So Peter, filled with his pride and filled with himself, he believes that even if everybody else falls, he won't because he's better than that. I believe that that is at the very root of Peter's crushing denial. Because as soon as we think that we're better and we think that we have it all figured out, that's when we've set ourselves up for failure and a fall. Now, I want to walk through some of the, 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 this text and the story behind this text and identify these seven 
issues that come with pride. The first one I would suggest we learn from Judas, who's not in the, the, the text here in John, but Judas is the betrayer who has sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, that comes out of a, a man who had just spent three years serving with Jesus. He had seen Jesus heal the blind. He had seen Jesus give the lame the ability to walk again. He had watched Jesus as he raised Lazarus from the dead. Judas had seen all of that, and yet, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold out Jesus. Judas decided that him gaining that monetary payoff at the right time was worth more than his friendship with Jesus. See, I believe that pride will put our needs in front of others' needs. That's item number one. Now, you could confuse this, and it's tied in very, very clearly with selfishness. You, you could define that as selfishness. But I believe that, that at the very root of selfishness is this pride. It is that I'm better, I deserve more. That, that I elevate myself and my needs above the needs of everyone else. And so at the very root of this, pride causes us to put our desires, our needs, our wants above the needs of others. Second, pride places our thoughts above God's thoughts. You see this in this text. You have the, these, these leaders of the Jews First, you have these two high priests, uh, Ananias and Caiaphas. Well, why two high priests? I thought there's just one high priest. Well, there is, but there's a story like there always is behind that. The Jews basically felt like the high priest served in that position for a lifetime until he died. But the Romans did not allow that. They did not allow lifetime appointments. And so the Romans required transition in that seat. And so you can see the familial transition here where Ananias, who was priest, has, or Annas, who was priest, has, has handed off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, as high priest. But where did they go first? Where did the high, the, these Jews in the dark of night, who did they take Jesus to first? They took Jesus to Annas. He wasn't officially the high priest in the Romans' eyes, but he was still the high priest in the Jews' eyes. And so they're beginning their trial with the one who they see as high priest, even though it's not official. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on here that, that we won't get into all of the details of this trial and, and how this was really a kangaroo court. But first and foremost, it's taking place in the dark. Second, uh, uh, the, the, the Jews were not allowed to try somebody and pronounce a verdict on the same day. Third, they were not allowed to pronounce a verdict on the same day that someone was going to be crucified. They're supposed to wait another day before they're crucified. But the Passover was coming, and they had their own plan, their own ideas. They didn't care about what the rules were. Their thoughts were better. Their plan was to get rid of Jesus as soon as possible. And so they began in the dark of night, early morning hours, to put him on trial before these Jewish leaders. Pride places our thoughts, my plan, above everything else. I want to I take a step back for here, here for just a minute because one of the things that we, we learn about pride through Scripture is that God hates pride. Proverbs uh, 16.5 says, Everyone with a proud heart is detestable, to the Lord. 
Be assured he will not go unpunished. That's interesting because this idea of pride is not always bad. You'll find places in Scripture where Paul says he's proud of the church and some of the people in the church, how they're loving one another. And so he expresses pride in a positive way. I don't think it's necessarily bad for us to be proud of our children. Or, or, or your grandkids. It's, there, there's a healthy pride in hard work, and, and, and Scripture teaches about, about taking pride in, in your work. But there is an unhealthy pride that places value upon me and my thoughts and my ways above everyone else's, and that's what God hates. And, and you'll see further in, in Proverbs 3.34, the Scripture says, God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. That passage, that proverb is so meaningful that you see it directly quoted by both James in his epistle and Peter in his epistle. And we'll get back to that later because, see, I think that Peter's pride is at the root of his failure. When we are so consumed by our ideas that we place them above God's, we set ourselves up for a fall. Now, as I further this discursus, I want to illustrate it by something that's going on in our culture and in our world right now. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 give us a pretty good picture of what sin is. There he talks about uh, the sin of those who are religious, and he talks about the sin of those who have never been involved in religion, those who are outside the church or outside uh, the Jewish faith at that point. But Paul begins this discussion in Romans 1.18 when he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal, mortal men, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over into the desires of their hearts. So you see what, what Scripture is teaching us in Romans. The root of sin comes out of when human beings decide that they know better than God. God has revealed himself. He's revealed his power in the mountains, in the stars, in, in, in nature. He's revealed his order. All you have to do is examine uh, the intricacies of the human body. Uh, just, just take a few years <laughs> to study how the human lung takes oxygen out of the air and transports it into the bloodstream so that we can have life. There's just so much about the, 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 the mysterious beauty of creation. And, and God's Word says that God has revealed Himself in creation. He's revealed Himself from the very beginning. Not only that, God's revealed Himself in our conscience. In every human heart, there's a sense of right or wrong that gets askewed when we turn away from God. But there is a sense of right and wrong. There's a conscience in every human being. But because man has decided we know better, we're smarter than God, we can figure it out with human reasoning. And we talked about this last week and the week before with, with some of the forefathers in the Enlightenment period when people begin to decide that humans could figure things out and human reasoning was elevated above God's revelation. 
So regardless of what God has shown us, what God has told us, we can figure it out and we're smarter than God. And when we take that step where we believe that our thoughts, our intelligence, our reasoning is above God's, this is what it leads to, Paul says. God will deliver them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. So that their bodies were, were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served what was created, the environment or whatever else, people, Hollywood figures, pro sports athletes. They worshiped and served the created instead of the creator who is to be praised forever. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and the men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is right. And thus, we just finished our nation celebrating National Pride Month. Do you see a connection? When our pride elevates human reasoning to such an extent that we decide that we, we don't need God, we know more than God, God's revelation is worthless because human reasoning is higher than God's revelation. When we reach that point, God doesn't say, I'm going to punish you by sending hell, fire, and brimstone. He says, all right, if you think you know best, I'm going to turn you over to your own thoughts, to your own lust, to your own desires, and this is where it will lead. And then we celebrate it, and we call it pride. Interesting that the enemy has used that word. Pride places our thoughts above God and shakes our fist at heaven and says, I know better. Pride puts trust in religion. That's what you see happen here with these Pharisees and Sadducees. They knew Scripture. They had the Old Testament memorized. They knew that the Messiah was predicted to come from Bethlehem. They knew that he was to be a suffering servant. They knew those things, but they ignored those things because that was not a part of what they liked about their religion. But see, religion, pride, causes us to put trust in religion because religion is something that we can do to try to measure up to God. If I can say enough good things or do enough good deeds or, or give enough money or, or whatever, if I can be a good enough person, I can do what it takes to please God. That's religion. That's the difference between what Christ is all about, what Christianity is all about, and religion. Religion is a list of do's and don'ts that I have to fulfill to measure up to God. That's what the, the, the Jewish leaders kept their minds focused on. They, they could fulfill every jot and every tittle of the law, but they missed the spirit behind the law because they did not walk in a relationship with the living God. But pride easily puts its trust in religion because pride says, I can do something to measure up. Pride also leads to failure. And I believe that that's what you see here with Peter. Peter, the most outspoken, most blatant, 
of the apostle. Peter, the one who, when Jesus asked the question around the campfire the first time, of uh, who, do, who do you say that I am? And they said, well, some of the Jews say this and some say this. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Look at his disciples. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The same Peter who said, I will never deny you even if I have to die. The same Peter who drew his sword moments before and chopped off the high priest's servant's ear. That's that same disciple in his pride and in his arrogance thought that he could not fail. And yet that's exactly what he did. See, pride keeps us from paying attention to the details. Pride causes us to avoid the necessary hard work that it takes to succeed. Pride makes us underestimate our adversaries. Super Bowl 27, many of you are old enough to remember this. It was a long, long time ago in January of 1993. The Dallas Cowboys were playing the Buffalo Bills in one of the, the three Super Bowls that they won in four years. And uh, big old lineman, John, Leon Lett, picks up a fumble on the opponent's 36-yard line. Now, he is rumbling and tumbling. He has 64 yards to go for the big guy to score a, a touchdown on a fumble recovery in the Super Bowl of all places. And he's got blockers behind him, and he takes off down the, down the field, and he gets to the five-yard line, and he, he looks to his left, and he sees a couple blockers, and he sees no Buffalo Bills. So he starts showboating. He sticks the football out, and he starts kind of dancing to the, to the end zone, slowing down. What he doesn't see is Don Beebe, the Buffalo Bills defensive back, coming up on him. And right at the one-yard line, Beebe reaches out and knocks the football out of Leon Lett's hand. The football goes through the back of the end zone, resulting in a touchback. The Buffalo Bills get the ball back. Leon Lett, that far, that far from, from immorality in, in his mind, of, of scoring the touchdown on a fumble recovery in Super Bowl 27, fails because of his pride and because of his arrogance. That's not the first time it happened. You can, you can Google stuff like that. It's all over sports. We see it all the time. But it happens in our lives too. See, I believe that and oftentimes the reason that you and I give in to the enemy and fall to sin is when we think we've got it made. We can handle this. We can do this. This past week, I have grieved for my... Uh, previous church at May whose pastor fell to immorality, a wonderful pastor. Susan said, you know, he's a good pastor. And I said, he still is a good pastor, but the enemy won this battle. When we think that we've arrived to the extent that we don't have to put in the work to spend time in his word, to, 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 to set boundaries around ourselves so that we won't fall, that's exactly when the enemy will get us and we will fall and we will fail. And that's exactly what Peter did. Peter, one of the closest to Jesus, how could he fail? How could he deny? And yet he did. Fifth, pride causes, to, causes us to speak without listening. You see that here in verse 20. 
The high, or verse, beginning in verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus' response was, I've spoken openly to the world. Jesus answered him, I have always taught, where? In the synagogue and in the temple. What was the high priest place? Where did he hang out? In the temple. Jesus said, I've been, I've been talking, I've been preaching in the temple, I've been preaching in the synagogues. I haven't been hiding, I haven't been teaching in private. Why in the world don't you know what I've been teaching? I can tell you why he didn't know what Jesus had been teaching, because he didn't like what Jesus teaches, so he didn't listen to him. But how often have you and I been sitting across from someone, and they're talking to us, and we're thinking about our response instead of listening to what they have to say? You know why we do that? Because we think what we have to say is more important than what they have to say. We think our response is more important than, than what they're saying. Pride causes us to focus on self to the extent that we won't hear what somebody's heart really is or what somebody's really trying to tell us because we're too busy caught up in our own thoughts and what we're gonna, how we're going to respond because we think that we're more important. That's exactly what pride does. These high priests had to have heard Jesus' teaching, but they didn't listen to it because they had their own ideas already. They already had their mind made up. They didn't care what he had to say. They weren't going to listen to learn anything. They'd already decided what they were going to do. They already had their mind made up, and it didn't matter what Jesus said. They weren't going to pay attention. Now, all of these, I believe, we see here hinted at in this text, but there, there's two reasons that I believe pride is so destructive that rise above these others. I believe these would be number one and two if you were to rank them. And the first one is this. Pride will cause us to miss Jesus. It will come... Pride will cause us to completely miss the Messiah, the one who came to save you and I. Max Licato put it this way, God resists the proud because the proud resist God. Arrogance will not admit to sin. The heart of pride never confesses, never repents, never asks for forgiveness. Pride is the hidden reef that shipwrecks souls. I believe more people will spend eternity separated from God because of their pride, unwillingness to accept the gift that God has offered, unwillingness to even seek God because they thought they had it all figured out than anything else. Pride is what comes between us and God. Pride is what causes us to resist this gift of God. Well, you could say, well, sin is what's going to cause us to, to spend eternity separated from God. Yes, it is. But God has offered a solution to your sin. He's offered a solution to my sin. He sent his son to die on the cross that if I would confess my sin, I would repent of my sin, turn from it, and turn toward Christ, sin is no longer a problem. So sin is not the insurmountable obstacle, but pride is if I am unwilling to confess my sin, to say that I'm wrong, I'm unwilling to repent of my sin, I'm unwilling to receive the simple gift that God offers me, 
of Jesus Christ, I will die in my sin. Not because I sinned, but because of my pride. My pride kept me from accepting that gift that Jesus offers. I believe that that's what you see here. The, the, the Pharisees, many of them had to have known. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies. One of our favorites, my favorite stories in the Gospel of John is in, in John chapter 11, we looked at several weeks back, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and you had two very clear opposing responses. Some saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and said, they believed. He's got to be the Savior. He's got to be the Messiah. Nobody else could do this. He has to be God. And then those who were witnesses went back to the high priest and reported what Jesus had just done. And their response was, oh man, we got to kill him now. He's raising people from the dead. Even the resurrection of Lazarus who had been in the grave four days could not chisel through their proud, hard hearts because they already had it figured out. They knew better than God, and they didn't need anything different. They didn't need a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth telling them anything different. Pride will prevent us from coming to faith in Christ. Pride will cause us to miss Christ. The, the one thing that you'll have to lay down, and this is why Jesus says it's, it's, it's important to have the faith of a child. When you see someone like, like Harper come to be baptized, pride isn't in the way at this point. She's willing to accept that incredible gift that, that Christ has to offer her. It's us adults who are unwilling to admit that we've sinned. And when we do that, we deny God's Word. God's Word says that all have sinned and fallen, fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 1, that, that passage that I read that introduced how we become separated from God, Paul goes on to talk about how those who are not religious at all, those who are heathen, those who have never been around church, who have never been around a worship service, they're going to die and spend eternity separated from God because of their sin. And then he goes on to say, and those, those who are religious, who have been in, in, in the synagogues, and those who have heard the teaching, and those who have read the Word, who refuse to accept His gift of eternal life, they're, they're, they're also sinners. And they're going to spend eternity separated from God. Whether you're religious or not religious doesn't matter. What matters is whether you're willing to drop your pride and say, I don't know everything. I don't have it all figured out. But God, I want to worship you. I want to follow you. I want to give you my life. That requires that we drop our pride before we can ever move forward. Pride will cause us to miss out on the greatest gift that's ever been offered, that gift of eternal life. It'll cause us to miss Christ just like it caused these religious leaders to miss Christ. But pride will also cause us to deny Christ. Even those of us who have, some of us who have faithfully walked with Christ for years or for decades, when you get to the point that you think, I'm good, I've arrived, I've got it figured out, I don't need to stay in God's Word. I don't need to continue to walk in a relationship with Him. I'm, I've arrived. I'm there. That's when you'll deny Him. Sin will creep in. The enemy will, will use that, that opportunity to come into your life and begin to destroy it. Peter, the great example of one who was so close to Christ, who knew all the right things, who had seen everything, still denied Christ. Christ. 
Pride, when we think that we've got it, that's when we're going to fail. We have to stay on our knees. I believe that's the reason that when Peter wrote his letter to the church, years later, he gives us these words. In the same way you are younger, be subject to your elders, but all of you clothe yourselves with humility to one another. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is in 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to how he goes on from there, though. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you in the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Peter had experienced it. Peter had been tripped up by the enemy when he was closest to Christ. In fact, he was so close to Christ at that moment, he was one of two disciples that was within earshot and viewing distance of Jesus when he was on trial. To the extent that that Matthew and Mark tell us that when Peter denied Christ and that rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at him. Can you imagine being in Peter's shoes at that point? You're standing there and you have just vehemently denied Jesus, denied even knowing him, denied being his disciple, only hours after you promised him that you wouldn't. And he hears you say it while you're standing over here by the fire and he's in the courtyard, this open courtyard of of, of this housing area. Jesus turns and looks Peter in the eye. No wonder, Scripture says, that Peter went out and bitterly wept. Some of us have already denied Christ. Some of us have given into sin. We allowed Satan to put us up. Some may be walking in regular sin right now. There's good news, though, in this story. Because even though Peter denied Christ in his pride, once his pride was broken, Peter confessed and he repented. And once Peter repented, he became the leader of the church. He became God blatantly, denied Christ, became the one that Jesus used to be the first pastor of the church. There's hope. Even if you and I have denied Christ, there's hope today of restoration. But we have to drop our pride. We have to confess our sin and bring it to the Lord and lay it at his feet. But when we do that, he'll forgive us and he'll let us move forward. In fact, he'll empower us to move forward. So yes, I believe that There's a lot of problems with pride. I think there's seven you can find here pretty clearly, but there's two that stand above all else. If pride causes you to miss out on eternal life, that's the greatest tragedy of all. But if pride separates you from your Savior so that you deny him as you turn to your sin, that's destructive to the body of Christ and to the church and to you. There is hope of redemption. In both cases, all you have to do is follow Peter's prescription. Humble yourself 
under the mighty hand of God. Drop your pride and come to the Lord and say, Lord, your word's right. I'm wrong. I need you. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.